Welcome to our True Crime, True Family podcast. Quarantine equals no life, so we've decided to start a true crime podcast. I'm Emily, and along with my mom, Kate, and our cousin Paige, we will be discussing popular true crime documentaries and cases. Due to sensitive subject material and explicit language, viewer discretion is advised. So... Emily's not here to do the intro because I sent her to go get me a story. Oh my god. I was like, I really, really want something that I will regret for the rest of the day. <laughs> I am so happy with the world that that the majority of people agreed that nine and a half years is a long time. Oh, they did. I didn't I when I hit <laughs> no, I was the first one to reply. You're like, oh, this is going to piss her off. Yeah. Well, then I kept hoping that, like, nobody else would, would. <laughs> but you're like, look, I, <clears throat> I hope nobody looks at this. No, you are wrong. It was seen by 137 Oh, people. it was? 67% agree. Yes. <laughs> I wrote, does nine and a half years sound like a long time to become a detective or not? I know when I clicked no on it, it was 100% no. So I knew I was the only one who had clicked on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you weren't the only one that clicked. I was very, very disappointed. <laughs> to find. When I did see that you, I'm like, oh, she just did. <laughs> I was like, I'm surprised she doesn't like try to make other instagrams to make it look like nobody agrees with me because <laughs> i didn't vote on it like an idiot like i didn't cancel out your vote and i thought about it this one i was like oh i never voted. <laughs> i was gonna be real mad if i logged in and i lost <laughs> um <laughs> Um, I will. <laughs> Valerie voted yes. So Valerie is just really winning as my favorite person in life lately. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we have to talk about. Gail. Yeah, we do. It's the last episode, though. No, it's not. This we're only on three? three. Yeah. Oh, we were on four. You wish. <laughs> I'm not, I, I think I was extra annoyed. I took very few notes <laughs> on this. I, I don't know why I thought it was it was the last episode. Mm-mm. No. And the one <laughs> last time I my notes from before I said um Hopefully not as much guilt in the next one. Guilt is the worst. <laughs> They're all about guilt. You're going to have to get over that. Well, yeah, I still had hope. I lost hope <laughs> in this one. <laughs> so, we're on episode three of Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. And this one was titled Lock the Hey, Doors. wait, before you start. Have you gotten your vaccine yeah. yet? Yeah, me either. No. So this episode, it was titled Lock Your Doors. And so it flashed all the names of the victims at the beginning. And I said, all um, episodes one and two have been very heavy in the story about Gil Carrillo, one of the detectives involved in the case. I personally think he is a tool. All we really know about Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, you know, the name of the documentary, is that he didn't always kill the victims. He had gross teeth and most of Los Angeles was afraid. (laughs) They were gross. They were disgusting. So I said, immediately Gil starts talking and my eye starts twitching. Gil gets on my last nerve in case you didn't catch episodes <laughs> one and two. 
I said, Gil is super proud of very mediocre accomplishments and seems to believe he is some prodigy because it only took him nine and a half years to become a detective. I wrote golf claps for Gil. (laughs) Gil tells us, so we got two of our officers and stuck them in the dental office waiting for Richard to come back in. So at the end of episode two, they had found a business card for a dentist and there was a bogus name, Richard Mena. But they spoke to the dentist and also asked around to other dentists and showed people the x-rays from this patient and it showed a badly impacted tooth so it was believed that the pain would be too much and he would have to return to get it um repaired so gil says one of the executives from my department thought that we were wasting money that that guy was probably not going to come back since the dental office was a jurisdiction of the lapd we got we got Los Angeles Police Department to put one of their robbery alarms inside the dental office. And I said, I feel like a phone call after he was taken back also. Yeah. Like, so they, and like, you wouldn't even have to say that. You could be like, oh, you know, is blah, 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 blah's paperwork. I mean, look, right. What do I know? You know, it didn't take me nine and a half years to be a detective. You're just never going to get off that. Uh, no, I won't. Never. I'm going to have it on my tombstone. If I was murdered and it takes you nine and a half years to become a detective, please don't get on my case. <laughs> so they put in, and they put in this you know, robbery, robbery alarm, and they pulled their guys out. And so on July 15th of 1985, which is day 120, Gil says, it's the very first day that we pull our guys out and put the alarm in. The doctor called me up about 10 o'clock that night and says, where were you? Why didn't you come? Richard had been in there that day. The doctor kept hitting the alarm and the alarm malfunctioned or wasn't wired properly. It didn't go off. And so we missed him. And he's like, I was upset how many more people were going to die. And I was like, also, why didn't anybody test it when it was installed to see if it worked? And also, why didn't anyone at the dental office be like, oh, they're not coming. Hey, um, we've been hitting our alarm why are you not here? Probably would have been like a valid thing. Like, why are you here till 10 p.m.? He's like, look, I got done with work. I had some dinner and then I watched TV with the family and then I decided to get around to calling you. So, we meet Robin Sandoval and Robin is the granddaughter of Max and Leela Needing. She says, I could, in my mind, every single day, walk through that house. I know every inch of it. I know every stain on the carpet. It's like, who gross. Like, can you wash your carpet? I can see. <laughs> I can see it all. My grandmother was a sports fanatic. You couldn't really even talk to her if there was a Dodger game or a Lakers game on. You know, I don't feel like baseball is that it's interesting not. to watch. Like, why does it have to be nine innings? Like, it's like, oh, here, six yeah. hours of your life. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. so slow unless you're there um, in the park. Yeah, and even that, it's like, and if you're not drinking, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, so she says her grandfather was salt of the earth. He would keep boxes of full-size candy bars. None of these little pieces of candy. And I wrote, um, bitch, it's called Fun Size. It was always a full-size candy bar when Grandpa decided it was okay. And I remember there was a series of crimes that had happened. Somebody was breaking into houses. Some of the stories were about older people. I think one was two sisters that had lived together. And so they cut to a news report. June 1st in Monrovia, 83-year-old Mabel Bell and she's beaten to death her invalid sister survived 
which wow right like how i feel like if you're like in your 80s and you get beaten period you're dying like yeah seems so fragile um robin says i worried about my grandparents and i went to their house and i said grandma i've got to lock your doors there's this creep that's breaking into people's houses so she had told her her grandma she's like you've got to lock your doors there's this creep that's breaking into people's houses and it kind of reminded me like the way they're setting it up how people were getting in la like around here when they had that like the dc sniper mm-hmm. or the beltway sniper um like one of the nights one of the attacks like i worked like three miles up the road but people would like zigzag my mom used to walk in a zigzag into the grocery store and i was like mom what are you doing she was like well it's harder for the bullets (laughs) it's true (laughs) i was like do you really think you move what (laughs) Like, <laughs> I zigzag. Like, okay, but that's if you're going fast, mom. So Robin continues. My grandmother's response was, "Hey, we're from the Midwest. Sorry, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live where I have to lock my doors." I was like, well, she would really hate living in these times. (laughs) We have multiple locks on our doors, and I live in a very (laughs) nice neighborhood. And she's like, and where I have to be worried about who's going to come in my house. And I was like, okay, lady, I get your point, but maybe move back to the Midwest then. Like, maybe don't, like, like, go live where you can be like that. She's like, that's not how I am. And I said, which I'm assuming means that we're about to hear how Richard Ramirez broke in and killed the whole house. And so on July 20th, 1985, day 125, I heard two old people are killed. Jesus. (laughs) Well, I'm laughing because I edited Myself just then because what I wrote was two Jesus are so <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> like look, Gil really puts me in a bad You think? <laughs> Two old geezers died. Jesus, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) They died of gunshot and knife wounds to the upper torso. Well, and then I started laughing even more because I edited it. I'm like, I'm like, two old people were killed. I'm like, look, I'm going to make it nice. And you're like, geez. (laughs) So we meet Judith Nielding. Arnold, daughter of Max and Leela Nielding. And I'm guessing Judith is Robin's mom. Judith says, and like, wouldn't that be a bitch? It's like, oh, like right before my grandma died, I had this conversation. And it's like, oh, well, I guess God decided you weren't going to live then if you didn't want to live in these times. So Judith says, my father was a Seventh-day Adventist, and my mother usually went to church with him. I don't know what Seventh-day Is it like a religion or something? I don't know. Uh, Well, yeah, but I don't know, like, I mean, I think it's Christian, but I don't know, like, what makes it different. Um, So she says, I met them on Saturday mornings for coffee. I started calling the house to tell them I might be a few minutes late at... And I was getting no answer. And I thought that it was very unusual. My husband, I asked him if he would drive me down and take my daughter. I didn't want to go alone since I didn't get an answer. So she just knew that something bad had happened. So they went to the house and the gates and the doors and windows are open. And Judith went and looked in her parents' bedroom. 
And she said her father's head had been almost decapitated. Her mother's face had been shot off. The room was a bloodbath. Like, fuck that. Like, there is not enough therapy in the world. Like, just finding a body would be super traumatic. But, like, your parents, like, both of them, and then that's, like, you would just have to replace (laughs) my blood with, like, tranquilizers. That would be rough. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? I'd be like, I okay, like, I need 10,000 yeah. Xanax immediately. <laughs> Judith says, my five-year-old heard me screaming, so she already knew something terrible had happened. And so we see an old news clip, and Judith was saying that telling her kids was the hardest part because of how much they love their grandparents. Robin says, she looked at me and my sister and said, your grandparents are dead. They've been murdered. I said, well, okay. That (laughs) seems like blunt. Like, to a five-year-old? Like, geez. I said, but what do I know? I can't even help my kids with math. (laughs) I can't, man. I'm like, what? Third grade math? Fuck that. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, their math is, his math is stupid because it's like, what's, like, it's a math question I can answer, I know what the answer is, but, like, the way you're supposed to get it is not, that's not, and she'll, like, tell him to say how you got to that. I'm like, I don't know how you got to that, because this minus this equals this, and this minus this equals this, and they're like, well, yes, but they have to learn how to, and I'm like, look, I'm out. Yeah, they do math all different than we used to. Calculator. I think they just change it every other time so that, like, it's just annoying as shit for yeah. the next generation. So Frank Salerno is Gil Carrillo's partner, and he says, we got a hold of Glendale PD, and Gil and I met with the Glendale officers. It looked like a struggle had ensued. There were no shoe prints, but they were both shot with the 22. That 22 that he used on them, they connected to one of the earlier cases. Gil says, and it's the same gun that was used on the Dale Okasaki case. So that same night, there was another murder. So they went to the Kovanath residence in Sun Valley. And so he did two crimes on the same night. Frank says, as we walk up the driveway to the front entrance on the front porch, I said, Gil, look at this. There's a perfect Avia shoe print. We walk around the back where the point of entry is, which is a slider door that was unlocked. There was another Avia shoe print on the step up into the living room. The the suspect had entered the rear slider, went into the bedroom, executed the male, shot him in the head, and I said, I will never say this name right, so I fully apologize, but I'm not even going to try. It's like, Chana Wrong Kovanath was 32. Gil tells us the wife was sexually assaulted, and he sexually assaulted the young boy as well. Oh, that's... Yeah. That's so disturbing. I hate reading stuff like that, or hearing stuff like that. So Frank says Richard was there a long time for two to three hours. He took quite a bit of jewelry and other stuff. Frank says this is the case that showed everything. I'm like, okay, Frank. We had the Avia shoe print. We had the 22. We had the MO that he was executing the mail. They're flashing crime scene photos while he's talking. And that, oh, like they're just disturbing. And like he's in his tidy whities. Like, could you cut that off? Sexually assaulting the female and sexually assaulting the eight-year-old boy there. So we had all of that in one case. The female victim, she was very traumatized, but she was very clear in what she remembered. Her description, as far as a composite drawing went, was very good. Very similar to Okazaki and Hernandez. And that was the composite they went public with. And, I mean, I can't even imagine... 
being that poor woman, like your kid was assaulted and your husband's killed and you were assaulted, like, uh, I feel like I wouldn't be like out of the hospital anytime soon. Um, Gil said, Frank had been through a serial killer before. I remember leaving the Hall of Justice one day asking him if it was wrong for me to want somebody else to die. I wrote record (laughs) scratch what? Um, Can Gil just go the fuck home already? Like, you fucking numbnuts. Uh, Yeah, it's wrong, jackass. Like, why do you have to ask it? Gil's ignorant ass says, I needed more evidence. I needed him to screw up. And the only way he'd make a mistake was if there were more victims. I wrote, or if you had managed to set the alarm up right at the fucking dentist. Well, he probably wasn't the one who set that up. Um, okay, but well, you no. have to wish other people dead because the people that work for your organization are stupid as you. Um, Gil keeps going. He says, I didn't want to see anybody die, but I needed some more pieces of the puzzle in order to work it. And I wrote, fuck right off, Gil. Or maybe find the fucking shoes. Like, I don't know. But there, I feel like there's a lot of ways to go before you get to, like, you know what? I don't really know what to do, so could you kill some more people and mess up when you do it? That's fucking stupid. And even if you think that, why are you repeating it out loud to the anyone? And then you're going to say it again on a documentary. Like, <laughs> ugh, ugh. So on August 6, 1980, you cannot tell me that you think. That no, Gil no, was right he was not. Saying, like, no, oh, I wanted more people to that. die. He was not right in saying that. Kills the worst. So August 6, 1985, day 142, Gil says. We had called for a meeting of everyone involved to get everybody on the same page to try and solve the case. Like, oh, really? Day 142? That's when we're going to decide to get this done? Fucking idiot. Frank says, in this meeting, we get interrupted. There was another case in Northridge. Two people had been shot, Chris and Virginia Peterson. Richard entered the house, went into the bedroom, shot Virginia the left side of her nostril, and the bullet lodged in the back of her neck. It didn't hit any vital organs. That sounds awful, though. She started screaming. Mr. Peterson started to sit up and got shot. He got shot in the right side of his head, but it didn't go through. Chris Peterson gets out of bed and chases him out of the house. Frank says the suspect used the word bitch, which is a common word, but that was some of the terminology that he liked. I was like, what is your fucking point? Like, the killer like to use the term bitch like is this some um, shock I, like I don't understand and Frank usually is not the dumb one so I was like why are you saying that it was a 25 auto the unusual thing about that shell casing was that there was a red primer so the crime lab told them that's old ammunition they don't make that kind anymore with the red primer now, I know nothing about guns and ammunition, so I don't, I don't know, know what either. red primer even means. So we hear a recording of Richard Ramirez and, like, get excited because this is, like, the only thing we'll hear about him, actually, the whole time. He says, I ran into some situations that were very precarious. If you do something so many times, it's bound to happen wrong some of the time to apprehend a serial killer they need a mistake by the killer or a stroke of luck by the police either that or they need to get inside the mind of a serial killer frank says they knew that the killer was reading the paper and i mean i feel like you would assume that that the killer's gonna read the papers wouldn't you like i feel like anybody that's gonna commit crimes is gonna be like scouring it to see if anybody said anything about it um in the doy case mr doy's 911 call was leaked to the media from then on the phones were either taken or disabled at the crime scenes gil explains that like we're four years old and we cannot (laughs) figure anything out for ourselves 
The LA Times contacted the Sheriff's Department, and they wanted to do a story about Frank's involvement in the Hillside Strangler case and now being involved in this series of crimes. Frank says, I made the flippant remark that this case here, this recent one, that shows the true colors of what this killer is all about. And what I meant was he's a coward. He shoots two people in the head, in bed, a husband and wife. Chris Peterson gets out of bed and he chases this killer out of the house. That was probably something I shouldn't have said, but I was pissed. I had no idea it was going to be on the front page of the LA Times with a photograph. It also had a bunch of details about his life and he had children at home. Like, that is terrifying. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like if you were a cop, I would yeah. wish I don't have kids. Frank says, it's the only time in my entire life that I slept with a gun. And I was like, um, also, maybe move your wife and kids somewhere safer. Talking shit in the newspaper is, like, taunting. A co- like, And I get he didn't even, he probably didn't even think about it and didn't realize what he said. But, like, eesh, yeah, I'd be terrified. Um, so people are buying up guns, and we see lots of people on like in on the street interviews and everybody's just scared. So Laurel Erickson, a reporter for KNBC news says journalists want to give this unknown monster a name. KNBC and named him the walk-in killer. Next he got called the Valley intruder. Then the Herald examiner called him the night stalker. And that was the one that stuck. Then they showed a ton of news reports referring to the night stalker. Um, and I have heard, like, people complain about giving them a nickname because they say it glamorizes, like, the crime. And I don't know. I mean, I don't really think it's, like, glamorous. I just think it's a way to, like, mentally mm-hmm. catalog where it goes. So on August 8th, 1985, then this is day 144. Pearl Carrillo, Gil's wife, says, we were sleeping and the phone rang two to three in the morning and Gil answered it. When he got off the phone, I remember asking, where did he hit now? And Gil said, Diamond Bar. Gil got his wish, I guess. Like, more people are dying. Speaking of dipshit Gil, he tells us, the drive to Diamond Bar was just a matter of five, six minutes away. It was close. Pearl was terrified. She told Gil he couldn't go anywhere until she was gone with the kids. She was leaving and not coming back until this was over with. Like, they're playing super dramatic music in the background, and Gil sounds like he's about to burst into tears. And I, like, I don't understand. I feel like that's exactly what Dan would do. Dan would be like, ah, no, you are getting out of the house. Like, I wouldn't have to say it to him. He'd be like, no, you will be gone far from here. Especially after his partner just did an interview. And, like, I would think that would put it into a better perspective, even if you, like, were still stupid. But, obviously, Gil just only thinks about himself. So, like, Gil is the worst. He was probably just sad because he's like, oh, my God, we're never going to solve this case. My wife is never coming home. And Gil says, I'm nothing without my family. I said, so you are nothing either way. <laughs> oh, my God. like how funny this is to you (laughs) oh my god well what's funny to me is just your reaction (laughs) like I don't like I could oh really we did not notice Well, I don't know why you, like, are even shocked. <laughs> so, Gil got to the scene first. There was a half-eaten honeydew melon, which makes Frank believe he was getting comfortable. But, like, what if Gil went in there and ate the other half? <laughs> Where did that 
come from? Because <laughs> he got to the scene first. He's like, oh, I am hungry. So there was a dead husband shot in the temple with the 25 automatic pistol and the same ammunition that they found at the crime scene of the Peterson attack. The victim was Elias Abawath, age 35. Like, there's a lot of weird names. The woman had been sexually assaulted, and she told detectives that he said, don't look at me, don't look at me. She said, I swear to God, I won't. And Richard said, don't swear to God, swear to Satan. Gil got angry. Gil says, so many people have walked through the crime scene, captains, lieutenants, other people that were involved that happened to be called. Didn't Frank just say Gil was the first person there? Like, handle your shit and set it up correctly, you idiot. He's like, for a lack of term, looky-lose, because they all wanted to see this is big news now. Like, Gil, don't you dare a minute in your life get on other people's case about what they, like, should and should not have done with your nine years. Gil says, I happened to go down to one of our substations and the sergeant was up there and he was telling these guys everything he knew about the case and telling them how that guy was really a weakling and he's really not that dangerous and my buddy stood up and said Gil can you lend us some insight as to what's going on because it's your case and like why does Gil refer to every single fucking co-worker as friend and buddy yeah he does you know not one of those people probably ever has referred to him in the same they're like oh that's fucking that annoying ass Gil so he said, sure, I'll tell you. First off, everything he just said is wrong. The man's extremely dangerous. He's done a lot of damage. Don't take chances with him. This is what we're looking for. This shoe print. I gave them the information. When I went back to the office, I said, we got to do something. We have media resources. We have a media section here. This is what we're looking for. Make 23 tapes. Get them to the stations. So everybody's getting the same information, everybody's on the same page, and you don't have to rely on anybody making up their own stuff because they want to blow smoke up someone's wazoo. Like, wazoo, really? I say, I wrote, Gil, I mean it from the bottom of my heart, I hate everything about you. So that's what they did. Like, what's like, I get that maybe it's not the same as putting it. I, I don't know. Like, Gil just is the worst. I'm, he, he's so stupid. Like, you're, you got mad at that one lady. Have we gotten to that? I don't know. What, you, what, what lady? Laura, it's coming up. I started saying something else, and I was like, wait a second. I don't think... So I was kind of <laughs> talking to myself there. <laughs> oh. So, but so, like, Gil wanted to make that stupid PSA and send it to all the stations, and, like, it's not exactly, like, putting it in the paper or, like, announcing it to the world, but, like, there's a lot of opportunities for information to leak. Like, why are you sharing everything? Keep some of it back. So then they go to Gil's PSA. They describe Ramirez um, as Caucasian male or light-skinned Latin, age 20 to 35. I said, that does not seem like a very <laughs> narrow age cap. 5'10 to 6'2 with a thin build having medium length brown hair that is wavy or curly. He also has stained gapped front teeth and wears a shoe size of 11 to 12. Never in my life would I be able to look at someone and be like, oh, that motherfucker's foot is. They measured it. No, I'm saying like you're giving it out like. So if you see oh, this yeah. person on the street, like that would <laughs> okay. never help me. Gil says, speaking of shoes, the shoes we are looking for, and then it trails off. 
So San Francisco, August 18th, 1985, day 154. We meet Frank Falzone, San Francisco police inspector. He tells us my partner, Inspector Carl Klotz, like that name sounds so much like Klutz and it sounds very like clunky to say. And they were called out to a crime scene on Eucalyptus Avenue, which in San Francisco is out by the zoo. And what we witnessed was horrific. Mr. Pan had been shot in the head. He was dead, still lying in a pool of blood in his bed. Mrs. Pan had been raped and she was also shot in the head, but she still had a pulse and she was um, taken to San Francisco General Hospital. The crime scene was grotesque. After the murder, the killer opened the refrigerator, ate food that was inside the refrigerator and regurgitated it on the kitchen floor and then masturbated on the living room carpet and carved a satanic symbol on the wall. Like, that is very gross. Oh, my God. Like, more disturbing than just killing someone. It's like, why are you, like, beating off on the carpet? And I said, I really hope San Francisco (laughs) cops are the ones that take him down. And I kind of, I was expecting them to say he got rid of the Avia shoes and they found Nike shoe prints or something. Like, I did not think he was going to, like, go into all those detail. And I've heard there's a lot of bodily fluid to be leaving at a crime scene. <laughs> the guy that died was named Peter Pan. I was not even, <laughs> that's not even a joke. <laughs> and he was 66. Like, I would have felt, I could never be a news reporter. Cause if I was like, Peter Pan died today, I would have died laughing. <laughs> Never Neverland is not real because <laughs> Peter Pan kicked it. <laughs> so they put out an all points bulletin and they listed all the particulars of the crime. That drew the attention of Glendale PD down in Los Angeles. They suggested that the San Francisco cops suggested that they do a ballistics check on the slugs that were in the victim's bodies. It was 25 caliber gun and the bullets had the same red primer. So it was a match. Gil and Frank went up to San Francisco immediately. Laurel Erickson and her partner from KMBC studios got a call from the assignment desk with a tip that an attack in San Francisco had occurred and it was tied to the LA cases. So they also headed to San Francisco So the news guy going with Laurel is like, we went from the newsroom to Burbank Airport and flew to San Francisco in the clothes they had on and nothing else. Like, that's something impressive. Like, it's like an hour and a half flight, and I'm sure there's stores in San Francisco you can buy an outfit at. Frank says that as they got near the airplane, he nudged Gil and said, look at that. They spotted the news people. Frank says, no coincidence here. And I'm like, nothing gets by you, friend. Like, how have you guys not, like, solved this case? They're really trying to make this seem way more interesting than it actually sounded. So they call the entire Night Stalker situation a statewide wave of terror. Yeah, probably be more because of the cops than, like, anybody killing. It's like, oh, great. If someone decides to kill her, the cops are not going to find them. In San Francisco, the news crew team went straight to the victim's house. Paul, the producer, says, four or five houses up, there's this guy washing his car, and I start talking to him. He's like, I was like, big doings here, huh? Oh, yeah, this is bad stuff. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm a police officer. I said, your buddies were here, right? He said, yeah, they were. And he's like, oh, yeah, what'd they tell you? Just like those cases in L.A., all that shit written all over the walls. So Paul did not let his jaw drop. They didn't know that there had been any writing on the wall in the L.A. cases. So Paul thought it was Manson-esque. So once the devil worship slash Satanist part came out, calls flooded the newsroom. And, like, that exactly is why Gil (laughs) should not have made that PSA. Like, that is a fucking cop. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's exactly like those cases in L.A. Like, oh, thanks. Um, so Gil and Frank were at the pan house looking around and Laurel marched up and knocked on the door to talk to Frank. So they cut to Laurel's newscast and Laurel says, 
There was grim news today for LA Task Force investigators, Sergeant Frank Salerno and his partner, Gil Carrillo. We understand that there was writing on the wall and it says Jack the Ripper and that it's one of the links between here and LA. Um, Frank, I think Frank says this. I don't know where you're getting your information. Anything that comes from this case has to come from San Francisco Police Department. Okay, thank you. Paul says Frank must be a great poker player. His face did not show a thing. He's totally denying it. So back to the news report, Laurel says, as, San Fra- as for San Francisco police, they are trying to do what L.A. officers <laughs> could not. <laughs> I was like, yes, Laura, I'm a fan of that shade. So Gil and Frank briefed the San Francisco police on everything they knew via shoe print, the description, etc. So back to Gil's stupid PSA, he's like, we are asking that upon your arrival, you be extra careful while responding to and around the residents, keeping an eye out for any footprints that may have been left behind by the suspect. So then they flash pictures of shoes, and he says, this shoe, which has a U.S. patent on the sole, has a very distinct pattern of which there is no other alike. And, like, listening to him say this, it reminded me of, like, you know, people that try to sound smart and they just look up words in the thesaurus and throw random words in, like, so they sound, like, educated. So, he said, it's absolutely essential that this information concerning his footwear remain confidential, especially with any subjects and or the public. It's like, okay, so let's mass produce a tape of this and hand it out, like, willy-nilly to all the police stations, Gail. Where's the logic in that? Like, obviously anything the press finds out, they're told by, like, a police officer, whether or not it's on or off the record, you fucking idiot. Oh my god, (laughs) I hate him so much. Like, I wouldn't even be shocked if Gil sent it to Laurel on accident, and he's like, oh, oops. More of Laurel's news report. San Francisco now has more than 60 police officers assigned to its own special task force. Night patrols increased tonight, especially in this neighborhood where a man was murdered over the weekend. So Inspector Falzone in San Francisco asked if the mayor's office would issue a reward for information leading up to the arrest and conviction of the killer. Of the killer of Mr. Pan. And I still can't (laughs) believe this man was named Peter Pan. So Diane Feinstein was the mayor of San Francisco and Mayor Feinstein held a press conference and says, your attention, please, for a brief statement. Everybody, please closely study this composite. He's someone that will go into a home at night and will kill. And it's a very serious situation. There's a $10,000 reward for any information which can lead to his arrest and conviction. Ballistics on the weapon. I'm sorry. They cut to a shot of the people attending the press conference and Goddamn, eighties <laughs> hairstyles were wild. Like they were something else, man. On the weapon that killed both Miss uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pan out on Eucalyptus over the weekend are the same ballistics on more than a dozen murders committed in Southern California. Frank says, when we got back to L.A., we learned that Mayor Feinstein held a press conference where she just vomited all really important information out to the public. She gave up to the fact that we had connected these cases with a shoe print, with firearms evidence, which isn't that also a blunder on law enforcement for not briefing her properly? Like, I don't know that it's fair to just put that on her. But, like, that's even more reason why Gil shouldn't have made that PSA because the more like you can't control it, the more people you show it to or, and like you're giving copies of it. It's not like you're like taking it and showing it to the like force and then leaving with it. Like you sent them copies. Wait, that PSA wasn't but, on TV. Um, it was sent to police departments. No, no. no yeah. It, he sent it out just to the police departments to try to oh, like get everybody I think on I the thought same it was page. like on TV. And oh. he said he did that because he didn't want it getting leaked oh. on TV, which I thought was stupid. Um 
I said, and I'm sure Gil blames Mayor Feinstein 100% solely and not the people who asked for reward money told her why they wanted the reward money, probably showed her the tape, but failed to make sure she knew not to, like, divulge or repeat anything to the public. I fully expect Gil to blame everything on Mayor Feinstein and not, and, like, not blame anything on whatever cop told her and failed to, like... I don't know, like, briefer, like, I don't know, maybe it's because I used to work with classified information, like, there's no way, if, if, if you're doing it correctly, there is no way that someone knows, like, does not know that they're not supposed to share something. Like, so, to me, it's like, well, oops, like, there's not an oops, like, why wouldn't you treat it the same? So, um, Yeah, I wrote, why haven't they, like, figured out a proper policy or procedure for viewing slash obtaining evidence similar to how classified information is handled? Like, this is stupid and very annoying. Gil says she's talking about the V issue about a car and the caliber of gun. Frank says you don't want to release information only the killer would know. Now we're burned. The killer knows we know about his shoe print being left at various crime scenes. Gil says, and I went through the roof and I wrote, <laughs> shut the actual fuck up, Gil. Like, for real. Maybe get on whoever told her the information, you fucking moron. And maybe don't make a goddamn video out and pass it out to, like, 23 other fucking police stations, like, handing it out left and right, you fucking idiot. And then get mad because someone knows things. So, Inspector Falzone is like, without a doubt, Mayor Feinstein made a big mistake. It's like, sir, shut up. Like, why, how, who, how did she make a mistake? Whoever told her is the one that made the mistake. And like, why do you need a reward money? Maybe um, investigate and catch people, you assholes. And so, like, he's like, I guess the chief never told the mayor not to release this information. It's like, oh, Oh, okay, so so who fucked up again? Maybe you should say the chief, right? Like, God. Like, these fools are super annoying. Like, why was she even told anything? I'd be like, um, we need it to as a reward for the killer. And then that's all she can repeat. Ugh. Frank says, after Feinstein did her thing, we never did recover those shoes. Gil says it was devastating. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is all this lady's fault, you assholes. It's been over 154 days, but she ruined everything. You fucking idiots. Gil seems like a jackass with his it was devastating. It's also devastating how annoying you are. Gil's ready to take his ball, go home and cry to his mom and dad about, oh, they're not fair. Frank stutters talking about how pissed and livid they were. Gil says, went up to the eighth floor where our office was, and I said, fuck it, Frank, let's get out of here. This is bullshit. So we go down to a local bar in Chinatown. We had a drink with the captain, begging him, please, you got to go get Sheriff Sherman Black. He's got to do something. Stop politicians from from getting involved in our case. Is that hold up? Wasn't the mayor's office only involved because the cops went and asked her for reward money? Like, maybe tell your people don't go asking the mayor's office for reward money, you fucking fucks. This is not annoying. Like, they're blaming everyone else, and no one's saying, like, we should have, like, had more control over these things. He says, okay, I'll see you later. I'm going to get out of here. He calls us back about half an hour later and says, stop drinking, get something to eat, get back up in the office in 45 minutes. Like, well, I'm, I'm glad that like, this is how police work is done. Like, you know, have a meal. And even though you've just been drinking all afternoon, like we're about to go solve crime. Well, not solve it. Cut to a press conference. Sherman Block, the Los Angeles County Sheriff, addresses the press. Good evening. I want to thank all of you, first of all, for coming out at this late hour on such short notice. Because of the linkage between the events in our community, the murders and assaults, and the one in San Francisco, 
We felt it necessary to disseminate to all law enforcement in the state of California some very critical, sensitive information. It is unfortunate that some of these agencies around the state have released some of that information to the media, and I'm telling you that the information has significantly jeopardized the investigation that is underway. A week ago, we did not have a great deal to work on, but as of this moment, we have one heck of a lot less. And I said, well, what in the actual fuck was the point of that? Like, let's just announce, like, wow, we've got nothing, so when no one gets caught, don't cry about it. It's like babysitting toddlers. Like, why was that going to make anything better? Why announce that? Like, that's so stupid. And so now when you can't solve the case and more people get murdered, you're going to be like, oh, well, if Mayor Feinstein didn't, like, say that stuff, we would have had the killer. Like, oh, really? Because you were, like, 150 fucking days in and you had no fucking clues. So Gil tells us Sheriff Block told us he wanted us back down in his office and he says, well, fellas, what do you think? How did it go? And I just told the sheriff, Sheriff Block, you took two men that are down and out, tired, and you put a smile back on their faces and they're ready to go back to work tomorrow morning. And I wrote, what? Like, what? On earth, that was the dumbest fucking thing. You thought this was like, were you, did you think Gil was good in this moment? Are you asking me? Did I think it was good in that moment? Well, like, he's sitting there, like, saying this, like, he, he just, like, does this pointless fucking thing, like, stupid press conference, and Gil's all like, I was at the end of my rope about to quit and end my life and now I'm fine. Like, what? I'm just going to move on. He is stupid. So, like, it, it, it was ridiculous. It accomplished nothing. And the only thing was, like, Gil's, like, now happy that he has an excuse for when he's big fucking failure of why it wasn't his fault. Oh, God. He's such a whiny bitch. So on August 24th, 1985, day 160, it was almost 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, a 29-year-old woman told deputies an intruder shot her boyfriend in the head, then turned on her. Inside Mission Community Hospital, 29-year-old Bill Carnes fights for his life. His fiance, who was also attacked, is at his bedside. The intruder grabbed her, he sexually assaulted her, and he tied her up. Frank Salerno, the 46-year-old sheriff's sergeant leading the investigation, predicted the killer would murder again, and he did. It's like, really? He predicted it? Like, oh, I wonder, like, what he, why he could have figured that out, because there's been, like, seven billion murders, and, like, you all just are praying for another one that he messes up on. Oh, my God. It's been 160 days and a ton of attacks, and, like... These people, I, it's so stupid. They held a press conference about how someone leaked the information that they just announced could jeopardize the case. Like, I'm sure all Ramirez did was ditch his shoes and got right back to it. Like, you fucking morons. (laughs) I'm so mad. These cops are annoying. And I know far more about Gil than I would ever care to know. Like, and this documentary is not called too cool Carrillo it is called the Night Stalker (laughs) oh my god so this attack the female victims told officers that Richard Ramirez told her he was the Night Stalker Gil says so he was watching the news like we were like fuck you Gil like for real didn't that get established, like, three episodes ago? Like, you fucking idiot. Isn't this why Sheriff Block held his worthless fucking press conference? It was, like, the entire reason. Frank's walking us through some logic that most toddlers could probably figure out. He's like, so now we know he went to San Francisco, left San Francisco, came back down into Orange County. Like, there are no words for how <laughs> annoying all of these people are to me. 
Gil says, fortunately for us, there was a young man that lived in the neighborhood that when like working on a bike and he saw a car drive up, driving slow, looking around, and he thought it was funny, then he saw it leave. Frank tells us the young man recalled a partial plate of the vehicle and the description of the car. Cut to Gil, who says that got released to the news media and received a call from an individual who says he had a friend who had a very similar stolen car in Chinatown. And so the partial plate also lined up with the stolen car. So they found the stolen car in a parking lot in downtown L.A., cut to a news clip, and Laurel Erickson is in the Rampart area where the stolen car was spotted. Jump to a different clip. Detectives stake out the area, hoping the killer will come back. Excuse me, didn't... Huh? Didn't you just have a shit fit because Mayor Feinstein repeated what she was told, like she ruined the entire case? But you're on the news, like, letting it be known that you stoked, you staked out the area so the killer will come back? The killer that you know is watching the news, they're like, oh, we're going to tell them that we're going to come back, and we're not going to come back. Fucking idiots. These people are just announcing it, and you're just, like, sitting there. I, I, I don't understand. I, I hate them all. Like, why is it okay for you to sit there and tell Laura Erickson that you're staking out a car, hoping this guy will come back, but the mayor can't repeat anything that that you all told her, and you didn't tell her. Maybe they did tell her not to repeat it. Oh, he already said that they didn't. He said the chief forgot to tell her not to repeat it. Orange County Crime Lab processed the car, and they were they were able to pull a latent print off the rearview mirror where apparently the suspect reached up and adjusted it. Gil said, we had a live fingerprint, but we didn't know who the print belonged to at that time because fingerprints weren't automated. Like, I took my glasses off and put my head in my hands at this point because I'm so infuriated. (laughs) Gil is all running his mouth about how he wanted Ramirez to strike again so they can catch him. He gets mad at someone trying to do a good thing who is not a cop, by the way. Even though they, the cops have been botching this shit the entire time. They actually had him available to be arrested or at least bring him for questioning, but they managed to fuck that up. Now you have a fingerprint and it's all like, well, we don't know who it belonged to, so we were fucking bummed. Like, you... Any more excuses as to why these death attacks would, like, after the point is not entirely your fault? He's like, we had, like, a print and everything, by he, and we knew his name was Richard Ramirez, but we could not read how he signed his name, so, like, we weren't sure of the spelling. This is how fucking ridiculous goddamn Gil is. And I... I still, I know nothing about the Night Stalker, and I know everything about this fucking asshat. He's absolutely worthless. Like, I half expected that Ramirez was going to get caught because he walked in and confessed. He's really worthless. August 27th, 1985, day 163. Frank says, we got a call from a female and she said her father was sort of a street person. He he befriended an individual named Rick and he thinks Rick might be the Night Stalker. So, like, okay, so if this is how they catch him, like, somebody just randomly called and told you. Like, you didn't investigate shit. Like, either way, Gil's detective work didn't solve a goddamn thing. Frank says they set, sent a team out right away, found the father. He eventually told them, yeah, Rick is from El Paso. And one of the key things he told us was Rick had told him about a murder he committed in Monterey Park. An Asian couple that he used a 22 semi-automatic pistol on. It's always shocking to me. And this is not in the thing I'm saying this. Like, it's always shocking to me if, like, murderers talk to other people. Yeah. About- committing murder like what's yeah, the I don't scenario ever going to be like are they proud of it like I mean it's got to be but like 
fuck my pride. Yeah. Like, my freedom is probably a whole lot better than my pride. Like, like what's best case scenario? Like, then someone gets mad at me for, like, my unpopular opinions. And they're going to be like, oh, well, you know what this bitch said she did? Like, that's not good. So... I mean, and people just run their mouths too much in general. So I guess that information hadn't been released. And the guy also said that he got that pistol from Rick. Um, this guy had taken it to Tijuana and gave it to somebody. So two detectives took him to Tijuana. Like, really? That seems suspect. Like, that seems like fake cop. Like, I don't know. They said they recovered the gun and they also recovered a boombox or a big radio. And you know what's weird? It's like if I said that to my kids like a boombox, my kids would be like, what the fuck does that mean? Um, so the radio had been stolen during the Bell and Lang murders and they're flashing some of the crime scene photos and they are rough. The Bell and Lang's grandson had gotten the boombox for them and he kept the receipts. They were able to match the serial numbers. I don't know. To me, this all seemed like maybe it was planted. (laughs) But I half expected them to cut to a news report saying the Night Stalker's name is Rick. Instead, it is Frank explaining that the guy didn't know Rick's last name. And Frank is like, but he's probably the killer. Like, how rude of him not to fill out W-2s and leave them at the crime scene so Frank and Gil know who they are dealing with. So, in Sam, like, is that not weird? They're like, oh, we... I mean, we didn't know what what city he was born in, so, I mean, fuck us. So, in San Francisco, Inspector Valzone tells us that a police informant by the name of Earl Gregg, um, he surrendered a bracelet that he thought might be linked to the Night Stalker case, and he tells me he got the bracelet from his wife's mother. She lived in San Pablo, California, so they headed out that morning to find her. I said, hopefully they don't have to do any actual detective work or she will never be found, those fucking idiots. So, um, Falzone says she told us she got the bracelet from her boyfriend named Armando Rodriguez. He got that bracelet from a friend from El Paso who she only knew as Rick. She told us that Rick wore a black ACDC hat, wore a black members only jacket, and had bad teeth. The more she spoke, the more we knew we were on the track of the Night Stalker. I said, so let me just make sure that I understand. 163 days minimum. The police are investigating this shit and they have jack shit. This dude is killing people left and right the entire time. They get a break and stake out a dentist's office and then fuck it all up because their shit wasn't set up right. And that was around the 4th of July. They blame the mayor for repeating information that should have never been divulged in the first place. Meanwhile, the press leaks all sorts of shit, but nobody is saying dick about that. And the information you're getting now, identifying Ramirez, you only have because someone walked in and handed it to you. So without it, you'd still be over there playing with your dick, making excuses, hoping that he'd attack again and mess something up. Even though he's messed up plenty and y'all are too stupid to figure any of it the fuck out. Like, no wonder people are calling for police to be defunded. Like, that seems fucking worthless to me. Which, I don't think being a detective is easy or anything, but also don't sit there complaining you are livid and whining to your bosses about someone making a mistake while attempting to help at the request of law enforcement after you've dropped the ball left and right. Like, you've missed him, and you had opportunities, and, like, mistakes happen, but you want to get mad at this lady? Like, fuck right off. I'm already pre-annoyed for when they arrest him, and Frank and Gil start patting themselves on the back for a job well done, full of things that he only got caught because of, like, a random, like, somebody walked in and told you. Falzone tells us that Armando Rodriguez lives in El Sobrante, California, and that we're only minutes away. And as we pull up to the address, we stood outside the gate. Next thing I see is Armando coming out of the house, walking toward me. And I said, listen, Armando, we need your help. We need you to help solve probably one of the biggest and most important cases in the history of California. Like, what? 
and I'm sure this is very common, but it seems insane that they just run their mouths left and right and have the audacity to complain about details getting leaked. Falzone says, your friend Rick is a brutal killer. You're going to help us break the Night Stalker case. So now his tone changes. He's not the Night Stalker. I'm not helping you at all. So I grab him by the shirt and I physically <laughs> place him in the car, yeah. which I read as like, I beat the shit out of him. <laughs> I turned and I said, look, Armando, you can do yourself a big favor. Cooperate with us. We need the last name of your friend, Rick. Do you understand me? He's like, fuck you. I'm looking at him. And when I close and when I talk, I close my fist. He says, oh, you want to fight, you motherfucker, tough guy? And his hands come up and I struck a short jab. It wasn't my best punch, but it definitely wasn't my worst. He touches his cheek. Is that as hard as you can hit? I looked at him and I flashed back on crime scenes, the pans, the vomit, the masturbation. And I said, pretty boy, I'm going to split you from the top of your head to your ass. And I put my fist up against the windshield and I started over the backseat, hell bent on demolishing this guy. He threw his hands up in a cross and he fell back in his seat and he said, Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez. And that's the end of episode three. Like the first of all, I don't believe that story for one second. Like I flash back on the crime scene, the fans, the vomit, the masturbation. Like, why are you flashing back on masturbation, sir? Oh God. And so the last thing I wrote was, I'm glad it was not Gil who got the name, and I really hope that someone else actually catches Ramirez. I'm sure Gil will take credit either way. I said, it's a good subject <laughs> and all, but the cops are frustrating and I hate Gil. Oh my god. So thank god there's only one more episode left. Thank you for listening to True Crime True Family. Follow us on our Twitter at TCTFP and instagram at tctf podcast don't forget to subscribe to us where you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode please leave a rating and review we appreciate all the feedback join us next week